Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. We're going to come to the Lord in prayer now before Neil comes to help us understand that passage. And as we pray, I'd like you to think about your heart, the seat of your emotions and attitudes. Um, think about your lips, the words that you speak. Think about your hands representing your actions. And we're just going to have a, a time to reflect on each of these three things and think about the fruit of the Spirit. And for each part, just a few moments of quiet as you reflect on your heart, on the words you've spoken this week, on the way that you've lived your life. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have the freedom to come to you in prayer at any time, to speak to you about anything. We thank you that you are here now with us by your Spirit. Conscious that there are many Christians gathered all over the world for whom have to even risk lives to meet together. And so we thank you for the freedom that we have. And we pray that you would help us not to take that for granted. Heavenly Father, we think of our hearts, the, the seatbed of our emotions and our attitudes. And we think of the fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, in a moment of quiet, please lay on our hearts where we've fallen short in the attitude of our hearts this week. Heavenly Father, where our hearts' attitudes have not honoured you this week, we ask for your forgiveness and we pray that through your spirit you would change our hearts 
We particularly lift before you this issue of anger, which in different ways we will all struggle with. And we pray that as we look at this passage again shortly, that you would transform our hearts and give them your peace. Father, we lift before you our words, knowing that words have the power to build up, but also the power to tear down and destroy. And we think of the fruit of the Spirit that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In a moment of quiet, we bring before you the different ways that we've used our words this week in a way that has not honoured you. Father, we're conscious that it's not what lies outside of us that leads to us being unclean, but what comes from within. And so we do pray as you continue to transform our hearts and our attitudes that our words would fall in line and that you would use, help us to use words that build up and do not destroy. Lord, particularly in this issue of anger and how we express frustration and disappointment, we pray that in our anger we would not sin, particularly in the words that we can speak. Please give us that self-control. And we think too of our actions, the opportunities we have to serve other people, yet so often we turn to serve ourselves. We think of the things that we've done this week and the things that we have not done. And we think of the fruit of the Spirit that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, Father, we bring before you the actions this week done and that should have been done that have not honoured you. Father God, we thank you for the tremendous gift of your spirit that lives within each of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that when we keep in step with your spirit, when we're filled with your spirit each day, that increasingly our actions are shaped and moulded by you. We pray for protection this week, that we would not grieve your spirit when you call us to do something, that we'd be obedient. When you call us to resist and say no to sin, that we would choose to be obedient in joy. And we do pray this week, Lord, particularly in this issue of anger, that as we live our lives tomorrow morning and through the rest of this week, that you would be shaping our hearts and our attitudes, that you be shaping the words that come from our mouth, and that you would be increasingly shaping our actions, that we might live to the praise and glory of your name. And Lord, we also take one moment tonight just to ponder and pause to consider Christians, and indeed all those caught up in the terrible troubles in Syria. Just reading today that over a million people on the front line, most of whom are innocent and caught up in a terrible conflict that's gone on in different ways for so, so long. Lord, we bring these people before you and we can't even begin to comprehend what life must be like for them. But we particularly pray that the Christians in that place, under pressure, fearful for their lives, that you would keep them strong, that you'd help them to speak words of courage and encouragement and gospel truth to one another. And as so much is taken from them, we pray that they would serve and give their lives in service to others only possible because you are living in them. And so we lift our brothers and sisters in that part of the world to you and we pray for your protection upon them tonight and into the coming week. Lord, would you bless Neil as he comes to open up this passage to us? Would you 
uh, enliven our hearts to the wonderful truths within it. Please challenge us. Please correct and rebuke us. Please encourage and inspire us. And we pray that our whole attitude in life, particularly in this area of anger, would be shaped and reshaped for this week ahead in light of us being here tonight. Would you bless Neil as he comes to open up your word now, we pray. Amen. Thanks, Mark. We'll keep um, that passage in Ephesians open. We're going to be starting there, but uh, dotting around a bit and coming back um, to, from different places. So, but keep it there in front of you if you can, if you've got a Bible handy. When we think of people with an anger problem or needing anger management, we might think that anger is something that um, others are prone to, but not us. But in the book I mentioned um, by Jerry Bridges, uh, Respectable Sins, um, which I know some of you have read, um, he quotes from Robert Jones as saying this. He says, anger is a universal problem, prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence or immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric. Sadly, this is true even in our Christian homes and churches. And Bridges adds, our anger is often directed towards those we should love most, our spouse, children, parents, or siblings in our human families, and those who are our true brothers and sisters in Christ in our church families. Anger is a problem for all of us. So what exactly do we mean by anger? Well, the dictionary definition defines it as a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. It's basically an emotional response to something you find offensive, something you disagree with, something basically you don't like. And we all get angry from time to time, don't we? What is different is what causes anger and how we express it. We'll often express it in different ways according to our temperament. At one extreme, some might express it in physical violence. Others will express it in verbal violence by saying some pretty hurtful things. Others will be a bit more subtle in the way they, they express it, such as being sarcastic to um, someone or about someone who has made um, them angry. And others might find it hard to express and instead internalize it and um, become resentful and bitter. Anger is a, is a complex thing because the emotion itself may not be sinful if it's a response to something bad. But more often than not, it reacts with some underlying sin in our hearts and then leads to sinful emotions, thoughts, and actions. Hence, in that passage from Ephesians, it says, in your anger, do not sin. And it gives um, some examples of a sinful response in verse 25. Um, uh, no, sorry, it's 29. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. If someone has annoyed us by saying something bad that they've, um, or something that they've done, and that causes us to moan to somebody else about them, We've reacted in a sinful way. Likewise, it says, get rid, in verse 31, of all bitterness, rage, and anger, 
brawling and slander along with every form of malice. If someone has hurt us and we're holding on to that hurt and not getting rid of it, we are responding in a sinful way. Well, there are three three questions we're going to look at this evening as we tackle this topic. The first of those is what causes us to get angry? What are the causes of that? Not just what are the situations that cause us to get annoyed, but why is it that those situations make us annoyed when they might not be a problem to somebody else? What has triggered it in our hearts? Secondly, is anger ever right? Is anger ever right? And finally, how can the gospel transform our anger? But before we look at those questions, um, uh, let's just take a brief moment to reflect on a situation, maybe that's happened recently to you, where you got annoyed or you got angry. Just take a moment to reflect on that. What exactly did I get angry about? And what did I do with that anger? Just take a moment to reflect on a situation. Maybe this happened to you in this past week. What made me angry? Why did it make me angry? And what did I do with that anger? Just take a moment to reflect and quiet. Well, let's hit that first question. What causes us to get angry? The hard thing about anger is that it reveals what is in our hearts. And um, sadly, that's not always pretty. No one causes us to be angry, as Bridges says in his book. What someone else says or does may be the occasion for anger to surface, but the cause lies within us. And probably the three most common negative causes are something that has threatened my love of my reputation, my love of control, or my love of possessions. And let's have a look at some examples from the Bible of each of those. Let's start with reputation. If uh, you've got your Bibles handy, turn, if you would, to Esther uh, chapter 1. I haven't got the page number handy, but um, flick through it to the back of your Bibles, and Martin's going to read for us from chapter 1, verse 1 through to verse uh, 12. Page number 501 in the Pew Bibles. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days, in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of puffery, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. 
and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Martin. So here we have the, the powerful King Xerxes, who rules over the massive uh, Persian Empire, inviting all his nobles and officials to a banquet. Uh, trouble is, before they even get to the party, they've got to endure 180 days of the king uh, showing off all his vast wealth and uh, the splendor and glory of his majesty. Why does he have to do that? Because he's concerned about his reputation. He wants all his nobles and officials to think well of him, to think that he's the greatest king that ever reigned. And so when the party does start, there's no limit to how much is spent and how much everyone can drink. And just to impress them further, he decides to bring the queen in, his trophy bride, to show off her beauty, and again to impress them with his ability to find such a beautiful wife. But of course the queen doesn't want to be paraded in front of a group of, uh, of drunk men ogling her, and refuses to come in. And so the king, we are told, became furious and burned with anger. Why? Well, basically because she's made him look a bit of an idiot. Here's the most powerful man in the world, and he can't even get his wife to, to come in and do what he wants. Now, we read the story and think it's quite amusing. Um, it's so absurd. But, of course, there's truth in that for all of us, isn't there? We all like people to think well of us. And when someone gives an impression of us that makes people think badly of us, it makes us angry. Someone may say something unfair about us, and we, we get angry about the unfairness of it, but deep down, we may be more concerned about the damage to our reputation. Let's come on to the second one, which is control. Um, for this, let's go to Nehemiah 4. And a bit of um, background here. The, the Persians are still the dominant world power, and the Jews are still in exile. And King Xerxes has been succeeded by King Artaxerxes, who has given permission to Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the, the walls of the city. Uh, and this edict by the king, the, the emperor, um, overrules the wishes of the governor of Samaria, a man called Sanballat. So let's see what happens. We pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 1. And if Martin can read again for us. When Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? 
Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Thanks, Martin. So we have here Sanballat, who is basically a control freak. Um, he cannot cope with not getting his own way. Uh, and the issue here is not whether it was a good idea to rebuild the walls, but the fact that he'd lost control. And he responds first by, by verbal abuse. And when he and others realize that the walls are still going up, we're told they got very angry and decide to resort to physical violence. Now, I wonder if you can relate to that. You think you, you know best how something should be done, and um, you don't like it if somebody else has a different idea. Instead of sitting down and discussing it and coming to um, the best solution, um, you fight to get your own way. And if you don't get your own way, it makes you angry. You justify your anger by saying, well, they're wrong. And your idea is the right one. But of course, the real reason for your anger is that you haven't got your way. You're not in control. Sadly, many people find themselves in controlling marriages where one party, and it's not always the husband, um, is either so forceful or emotionally manipulative that their spouse feels completely downtrodden. And any time they dare to challenge an idea, it provokes an angry response. So over time, they just give up even trying. The third idol I want to mention is that of possessions. Um, we won't read at all this passage, but if you would like to turn to Luke 15 and maybe have it open in front of you, Luke 15, verse 11 onwards, it's the familiar parable of the um, so-called prodigal son. And it's a parable which is often taught with a focus on the younger son. But how does the older son respond to his brother coming home, having squandered his father's money, and then being given a party by his father. Well, verse 28 says, the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found. Now, why did the older brother become angry? At one level, it seems justified, doesn't it? He's slaved for years. He's never done anything wrong. While his younger brother goes off, wastes everything. Then when he comes back, he's thrown a big party. But why, faced with the same situation, does he respond with anger and his father responds with forgiveness? It's basically because of what is in their heart. In the heart of the father is a love for his son. He doesn't care that he's blown half of his estate in reckless living. What he cares about that is his son is back. He was lost and now is found. The older son, on the other hand, has no concern for his younger brother. That was his choice. He was stupid enough to to go off and waste it, let him suffer the consequences. The older son is just concerned for himself. He wants his father's wealth and is trying to get it through hard work, through earning it. And he's jealous of his younger brother who, who got half of his father's estate without doing anything for it. Now, if we have in our hearts a love for possessions, then anything that threatens those will make us angry. It might be something quite simple, like uh, the car breaking down and the thought of shelling out for, for repairs. It may be someone leaving muddy footprints on your new carpet or breaking your prized ornament. At another level, it may be redundancy and the fear of not having the money to do what you want to do. But in each case, the idol of possessions has been threatened. We get angry because of the treasures in our heart that are being threatened. In the marriage course, we've been looking at the danger of these idols to our marriages. And ultimately, problems arise in our marriages when we treasure other things more than God and our spouse. What is the treasure in your heart? Well, let's come on to the second question, which is, is anger ever right? And the examples we've looked at, the emotion of anger that was expressed revealed the sin in their heart. So for anger to be right, it needs to reveal a pure heart. The problem, of course, is that none of us will have a totally pure heart. Um, But there are some motives that that are more pure than, than others. And the main difference between righteous anger and the anger we've looked at so far is its focus. The anger we've seen is anger that is focused on oneself and one's own selfish desires. But if we're focused on God and his desires, then there may be situations when it's justified. And to help us with this, let's look at some examples of God's anger. And there are lots of them, and the Bible's full of them. What has God become angry about? Well, basically, the rebelliousness, the pride of humankind and the violation of his moral law. Romans 1 says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Colossians 1 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And when the Pharisees were looking to to catch Jesus healing on the Sabbath, 
We're told in Mark 3, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. But of course, we cannot focus on God's wrath without also praising him for his mercy. In Ephesians 2, we we read earlier on at the start of our service, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And if it stopped there, it would be quite depressing, wouldn't it? But we read on. And it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. So if God can be angry, then when is it right for us to be angry? Or quite simply, when we are angry, the same things that make God angry. And the ironic thing, though, is that the things that should make us angry, we are guilty of ourselves. The idols of reputation, control, possessions are all things that make God angry. And when we see those things in ourselves or or others, it should make us angry. If it doesn't make us angry, then there's something wrong. We become spiritually dead. If we do feel anger, then maybe the thing we, we often find hard is balancing that righteous anger with grace. We often tend to side more with one than the other. We, we might become angry at the sin of others without showing grace and therefore come across as judgmental or self-righteous. Or we will show so much grace that we give the impression that actually the sin is not really important. If we can become angry because we experience something we know displeases God, but the grace of God working within us enables us to control that anger, then it's right to get angry. The trouble is, whenever we do feel angry at the sins of others, it's usually mixed up with the the sins of our heart, and we need to be aware of that. When I'm stuck in a, a traffic jam on the motorway, as I'm sure... Some of you have also been in the situation and you see somebody heading down the, the hard shoulder, overtaking everybody. Makes me angry. But what am I getting angry at? Am I getting angry at the fact that that person is breaking the law, that they may cause an accident? Or am I also getting angry at the fact that they're getting ahead of me in the queue? They're going to get there before me and my time is more precious. So let's come on to the last and crucial question. How can the gospel transform my anger? Because we've all got anger inside us. And the first thing is to recognize and repent of your anger and its cause. We can't deal with our anger unless we are honest with ourselves about its presence. We need to pray that the Spirit would reveal not just our anger, but the cause of it. And we need to ask ourselves, why do I get so worked up about certain things. What is it that I feel deprived of? The hard thing about anger is it blinds us, doesn't it? When we are angry, all we can focus on is the thing or the person that has caused our anger. Sort that out, and everything will be okay, surely. 
We don't want to accept that there might actually be a deeper problem within us that our anger has revealed. And the trouble is, if we just focus on dealing with a situation that's caused our anger, yes, that may never trigger our anger again in that situation, but it will be something else that triggers it because you haven't dealt with a heart issue. If I'm angry, for example, because someone's broken into my house and stolen my valuables, I can put in place all sorts of security measures to ensure that will never happen again. But that hasn't dealt with my my idol, which is material possessions. And so that anger will resurface again when they're threatened in some other way. We need to recognize the cause of our anger and repent of it, turn away from it. When we are angry, we're vulnerable. We're prone to say or do something that will cause God's anger. And the devil will use it to get in. And that's why I go back to chapter 4. Paul writes in verse 26, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And later on in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Repent of your anger, turn from it, and return from its cause. Secondly, change your attitude towards the person who caused your anger. Somehow when we've been sinned against, we think it's okay to say hurtful and slanderous things. But of course it's not, is it? And here it says in verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And the letter carries on in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. If a Christian brother or sister has caused us to be angry, they are not our enemy. Our enemy is the devil. He's the one who's used what that person has said or done to affect the idol in your heart and consequently to make you angry. And if you've turned your anger on that person, then you need to seek their forgiveness. In Christ, God forgave you. For all of your sins. And if we've got a realistic appreciation for all the sin we have ever done and ever will do, and just how angry that has made God, and then realize that despite all that, God has still forgiven us, how can we then hold on to hurt and anger and bitterness? Which brings us on to the last point. Leave the occasion of your anger with God. Leave the occasion of your anger with God. If the occasion of our anger is not dealt with, maybe the person who caused it has not acknowledged their part in it. Maybe they haven't asked for forgiveness. That is not your problem. Let go of it. Give it to God. Let him deal with it. It is for God to change that person, not for you. And so let's finish with some words from 1 Peter, where Peter is giving advice to Christian slaves who would be justified for getting angry about their unjust treatment. But look how he doesn't tell them to rise up and abolish slavery because it's unjust, but instead he points them to Christ. 
He, he says this, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I don't know what God has been saying to each of you this evening. But it would be good as we close to spend some time just in private prayer, um, speaking to God and asking for his help. Ask God to help you recognize and repent of your anger and the cause of that anger. Ask him to help you change your attitude, maybe to a person who's caused you to be angry, if there's some undealt issue there. And finally, ask him for some help to allow you to leave the occasion of your anger with God and entrust it in his hands. So spend some time in quiet before we sing our final hymn. That there is anger in each one of us. That there are in our hearts idols that we still treasure and cling on to, things that replace you in our affections, and we're sorry for that. We pray that as you have helped us identify them, that you would help us turn from them and turn to you, and that you would be the treasure of our hearts and the only treasure of our hearts. And as our relationship with you is right, Lord, that our relationship of all of our brothers and sisters in Christ would be right. Our relationship with all of those around us would be right. That we would be able to love our neighbor as ourself. Lord, deal with the anger that we have. And when we feel that stirring up within us, help us to see what it is that's causing us, causing that, and deal with it. Lord, we thank you that your spirit is powerful, that he's more powerful than the devil. And we pray that we would see his power at work in each one of us as that sin is put to death. We thank you, Lord. Amen.